Okay, um, why don't we stand up and uh, open up in our Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Been preaching through the book of Acts. It's like the 40th book or something that we're preaching through, I forget now. Paul's fifth defense before King Agrippa has just ended, Paul would go to Caesar now. He would be sent by ship. So he was placed under guard, put on a ship along with other prisoners headed to Rome. And chapter 27, our chapter today, describes the journey on the ship to Malta, which is an island. Paul will arrive in Rome in chapter 28, uh, which we'll cover next time I preach. So verse 1 says here in Acts chapter 28, let me get there. Pardon me, Acts 27, verse 1 says, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you and we thank you for this time that we have in your scriptures today. And Lord, I ask and pray that you would bless it and use it for good. Help me to declare that which you've given me to preach this day. Use it for good in the hearts and minds of the hearers to understand your ways and your thoughts better, that they might be used more powerfully by you in the earth. Lord, we ask and pray that you keep our hearts hungry for you, desirous to seek your face, to live faithful to you with the days you've allotted us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. could be seated. So if you want to bring up that little slide, that would be great. Um, so, but see my little red dot? This is where Paul's starting, here in Caesarea. And so we're going to get all the way over here to Malta today. So we have a lot of ground to cover, right? So, verse 1 makes clear that Paul gets an all-expense-paid trip to Italy. Rome, Italy. Compliments of the Roman government. I remember one time I got taken out before a grand jury in Washington, D.C. All-expense-paid trip by the U.S. government. Paid for my flight, my beautiful hotel room, and even a nice trout dinner that evening. And the best part of all was I wasn't indicted. (laughs) So it was really nice that way. Paul, unfortunately, is in custody. And I want to show you his route. So I have this slide here. His journey begins in Caesarea. And again, we see that Paul is hanging out with the magistrates. He's placed in the custody of a centurion named Julius, along with some other prisoners. Paul was not one of the common prisoners. He was headed for an appeal to Caesar himself as a Roman citizen. So he had kind of a special place as a prisoner in this regard. And verse 2 says, So entering a ship of Adramptium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. So they start out in a ship from Adramptium, which, by the way, is from up here, along this coast here, pardon me, right here, above Ephesus is where Adrantium is. It's a city. So these are all port towns, and this was a ship 
way down here in Caesarea that they're getting on that was originally from way up here. And this was, by the way, right by the island of Lesbos. And when you hear the, hear the name Lesbos, something should come to mind, right? And that's actually where that term came from, is Lesbos, because of the poet that hailed from there that spoke of such immoral things. Notice there's three people here. There's himself, Paul. There's Luke, who's writing the book of Acts. And there's Aristarchus, the Macedonian from Thessalonica. So what we see here is that, remember Paul had that Macedonian call? Come to Macedonia. And remember we saw there wasn't a lot of fruit from that call. But there was fruit. And here we even see part of that fruit. Aristarchus is from the region of Macedonia. And Aristarchus is mentioned, if you're taking notes, I know those types of people will want this, Colossians 4.10 and Philemon verse 24. Aristarchus is mentioned in Colossians 4.10 and Philemon verse 24. So there's Paul, there's Luke, there's Aristarchus. We know of no others making this trip by ship at this time. Verse 3 goes on and it says, And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. So look, so like here's Sidon right here. Here's Caesarea. That's about a 40-mile ride. It's a day's journey. And they did it in a day. Went from Caesarea to Sidon. Note that they did that in a day because that's going to be important as we move on through this chapter here. So they get to Sidon and they find Christians. Cool. Notice there's Christians everywhere at this time. There's already a church in Rome established for many years before Paul gets there. And here he finds Christians. That's how we are. We're sprinkled amongst the nations. We are salt and light to the nations. Understand? And that's a good thing. I've often noted that even when we go and speak up for the preborn in small towns, you can tell when there's just one good pulpit there versus zero good pulpits. That's how much difference Christian people make in the culture. How you live your lives, what you say, how you conduct your affairs speaks volumes to those around you. If it wasn't for us being salt and light, everything would fall in utter deray and demise. Be faithful to him. Amen? Extremely important. So it goes on in verses 4 and 5, and it says, When we had put to sea from there, from Sidon, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. So here's how this all went, right? So they leave here from Sidon. They go past Cyprus here. This is the island of Cyprus. And they make it all the way here to Myra. And they do it in pretty good amount of time. No problems, really, along the way or anything like that. Now, here's something you probably noticed at this point. That these ships were kind of like Greyhound buses. They're making lots of stops along the way, right? Unloading stuff, loading stuff. That's how they made their money. Like... 
Here they are at Caesarea. They're heading way up here to Rome, right? So you think, well, if they're leaving Caesarea, why didn't they just cut across here and come right up through the channel like they usually do, right? Well, it's because they're like a, like a Greyhound bus. They have to make stops, pick people up, drop people off, put cargo on, take cargo off. So it goes on in verse 6 and it says, There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy and he put us on board. So they had to change ships. And Alexandria would be down here in Egypt. So the ship they're getting on in Myra was from the complete other end of the Mediterranean Sea. Pretty crazy, right? So they're getting on this Alexandrian grain ship. And this is a pretty large ship, though not by any means the largest of that time. We know later that there were 276 people on this ship, but we know there were ships that held far more people than that at this time historically. So it says in verse 7, they get on this Alexandrian ship, a ship from Alexandria, and it says, When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off, off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salon. Okay, so it took them many days, notice that, to get from Myra to Nidus. Look at that. That's like nothing. Remember, it only took them one day to get from Caesarea to Sidon? This is what you were left with when you didn't have boats run by gasoline. You were at the mercy of the wind. So it took them one day to get from Caesarea to Sidon, the scriptures say, but it took them many days because there was no wind to get from Myra to Nidus. Thank God for inventions, right? Like toilets that flush and ships that have propellers. So verse 8. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Okay, so they leave Nidus. They come down here all the way to Fair Havens. See Fair Havens? There it is. So they had come this far. It's been difficult, blah, blah, blah. And it says, Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship, yeah, I probably would be too, than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So they had already been slowed down because of the lack of winds from Myra. And now they lost more time in fair havens, perhaps because of loading and unloading cargo. And now it's past the time of the fast, it says here, right? In verse 9, it's time past the time of the fast, which is referring to the Day of Atonement, which means it's early October, because that's when it's held. Back in those days, to travel these waters past September 14th, 
was considered dangerous and considered impossible after November 11th. So they're almost a month into the dangerous waters time and about a month away from where you can't travel at all. So they debate about whether to winter there or not in Fair Havens. Paul warns against going on, but the decision is made to sail on to Phoenix, which is where? Right there. I mean, how close can you get, right? That's about 40 miles away. It's one day's journey by boat, less than a day's journey by boat. Paul's telling them, don't do it. Bad things are going to happen to you. They're thinking, well, it'll be better there and blah, blah, blah. You know, this isn't the best port to winter in in Fairhavens. It's that close. We'll just go there. Paul's saying, don't do it. I'm telling you. Listen to me. Don't do it. But they do it anyways. And look what happens in verse 13. It says, when the south wind blew softly, so this convinces them, yeah, the wind's blowing softly, it's only 40 miles away, it's less than a day's journey, we'll be good there for the winter. Think of that. Your whole life stopped for the winter. Even 100 years, 150 years ago, remember during the Civil War? War would stop during the winter. There's like nobody would fight for like three, four months while winter was taking place. How different our lives are than men of old. They had to spend their winter wherever they're in the boat when it comes. That's three to four months that they would be stuck there. Very different lives than we live now. So it says, when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So they're staying close to the shore, don't want to go out too far, they want to get to Phoenix. But look what happens, verse 14. But not long after, a tempestuous wind, headwind arose called Euryclidon. So things are looking good. They head out and bam, they hit bad weather. How many of you have, how many of you sail or go on ships? You know how quickly that can change. They didn't have any instruments in those days to know when something was coming. Other than, you know, red skies at night, sailor delight, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Other than that, they really didn't have anything to go by. So they get out there and bam, they get hit by Euryclidon, which is a bad wind, a combination of an east wind, Euro. We have a street preacher over here to the side somewhere. And a north wind, the word Clyden, so it's a northeaster. They called it a northeaster. It's a northeasterly wind. So things are going to get bad. <laughs> they, they go out, Paul told I told you not to go out, right? You guys said don't do that. And they did it anyway. Verse 15, so when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. In other words, you're going with the wind in order to keep yourself from sinking. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, uh, it says, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the citrus sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. So things are in bad shape here. 
Not good at all. This storm actually went on for 14 days. Highly unusual for this geographical area, though not unheard of. And they're out in the middle of this sea, and that's why there's the squiggly lines there. Because they got driven out, and the squiggly lines point out they're just going all over the place. Just going with the flow of the storm, which is changing, and they're in a really bad way. So look what it says in verses 21 through 26. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. So Paul stands up and says, basically, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't leave. We should stay here in Fair Havens. And now look at the mess we're in, right? So Paul stands up and says, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. And they would. It was the island of Malta. What I want you to notice here in this passage is how confident Paul is in the midst of this situation. Look at his confidence. They've been out many days, tempest-tossed, had to throw over some of the tackle, haven't eaten in days, and in the midst of it all, he is sure of what God has for him. Sure of it. He knew God had a mission for him to accomplish. God had a mission for him to accomplish. Every one of us in our lives has a mission from God to accomplish. Those who name his name are his people. And he has a purpose for each and every one of you. In this earth with the days that he's allotted you. Paul knew God had a mission for him to accomplish. And he knew the Lord would, listen to this word now, keep him. The word keep. He knew the Lord would keep him as he was on mission for him. He knew God would keep him so he could accomplish his mission in the earth, what the Lord had given him to do. The word keep in our modern dictionary says to watch over and defend, to take care of. The 1828 Webster says this, to hold to retain in one's power or possession, not to lose or part with. And that is how the Lord is towards us. As his people, as being in mission for him, with what he's given each of us to do, often very different than each other, what he's given us to do here in the earth. He keeps us, amen? He retains his power and possession of us, He does not part with us. Our days are in his hands. Even when you're out in the midst of a storm for many days without food, thinking we're all going to die, his hand is still upon you. 
It goes on in this definition from the 1828 Webster, and it says, to preserve from falling or from danger, to protect, to guard, or sustain. And then Noah Webster actually quoted a scripture verse out of Genesis 28, verse 15. Genesis 28, verse 15, where Jacob is being spoken to by the Lord, and the Lord says to him, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you. I am with you, and I will keep you. And that is exactly what the Lord says to every one of you. You are people of his name. You are a people of his possession. You should be on mission for him in the earth. You should seek to desire to know what he wants you to do with your life. You must seek God. When I was a young man who came to know Christ, people would gather in the front of the altars and cry out to God. The young people would. What do you want me to do with my life? And I'm not kidding you, within seven or eight years after that, it all changed. And all the adults told their kids, go to college and get a good paying job. Nobody was going up to the altar anymore. No one's crying out to God anymore. What do you want me to do with my life? College and a good paying job might be what he wants for some, but we know it isn't for all, and they were all being told that. It was a huge mistake by that generation above my generation, a huge mistake telling all their young people, go to college, get a good paying job. No, the people who were leading Christianity when I first converted in the late 70s were doing it right. They were saying, you seek God as to what he wants you to do with your life. So you must humble yourself, get alone with him at your home, next to your bed in your prayer closet, cry out to him, God, what do you want to do with my life? And you submit your life to him. And he says to you, I am with you, and I will keep you. Noah Webster still isn't done. He goes on and says regarding the word keep, to hold or restrain from departure, to detain. God will keep you, even in the midst of danger. You don't get to depart yet till he's done with you. Your death will not be by accident. Understand that. You will have the days he has given you here on earth for his purposes. He will hold you. He will restrain from departure. Noah Webster still ain't done. He says to tend, to have the care of, to tend, to have the care of. And he again quotes another passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis 2:15, And he says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Just as God has given us things to do, our work is a means whereby we take dominion in the earth. Adam was to keep the garden. And so it is, God keeps you as his people, as his possession. So Paul had confidence in the midst of the situation. He knew God had a mission for him to accomplish, and he knew the Lord would keep him so he could accomplish that mission. The Lord wanted Paul taken to Rome to meet Nero. Is that what it says there? 
right? Brought before Caesar. Guess who Caesar was? Nero. Think of that. In order for Paul to continue his mission to the magistrates, in order for Paul to continue his mission to the magistrates, God is preserving his life. He is not going to die out in the middle of that sea. His mission is not over. Paul understood that God's law, word, and gospel were intended to impact all the nations of the earth. He knew that Jesus said, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is something lost on American Christianity. Something you have to understand. His kingdom is a conquestorial kingdom. His kingdom expands in the earth. It's not some little thing hanging out at these places called church buildings, which are nothing more than moose clubs with modern-day American Christianity, holding out by our fingernails till the rapture takes place. No. His kingdom impacts the nations of the earth. His rule impacts every area of man's domain. And that's extremely important to understand. Paul knew that Jesus' final command was, quote, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And Paul said his ministry, Paul said himself, that his ministry was, quote, for obedience to the faith among all nations. Paul understood this. He knew what his mission was. He had a mission to the magistrates. He had a mission to the nations. This is why Christ is declared by John to be, quote, the ruler over the kings of the earth in Revelation 1.5. The ruler over the kings of the earth. Contextually, this was declared to be so then when John wrote it, not to be applied off in the suite by and by. Paul says of Christ, quote, who is the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.15. 1 Timothy 6.15, who is, present tense, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, not just off in the sweet by and by, now, Paul uses the present tense as there won't be any kings or lords in heaven. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords now. There are going to be kings and lords in heaven In Psalm 2, a messianic psalm for telling of Christ, the Father says to Jesus in verse 8, quote, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, unquote. Christian men saw Paul's life. They saw the, the early church in action in the book of Acts. And so Christian men down through church history understood that the rule of Christ extended to all the nations of the earth because of what the scriptures declare. To think that the law and word of God would not impact nations was an absurdity to them. And yet if you think what I just said to you, that his kingdom should impact all the nations of the earth, it's viewed as a heresy by modern day Christianity. That's how messed up and off course American Christianity is. 
Christian men of old believed the civil authorities should, quote, kiss the son lest he be angry, unquote, Psalm 2. They sought to win the magistrates of their day to Christ or to at least respect his rule. They understood that the law of God in society was needed and that civil government was supposed to be a picture of God's justice and glory in the earth, causing men to consider matters of eternal salvation. Do you know how important that is? The average Christian is like, why should we waste our time with abortion? Why should we waste our time about matters of homosexuality? That's mere moralizing, they say. The reason we should is because all of the great governments God established, family government, church government, and civil government, all point men to Christ. The civil authority has the duty to make law that mirrors the law of God. If they make law contrary to the law of God, it helps men justify their sin and rationalize their evil. The magistrate said it's okay for me to abort my son or daughter, so it must be okay. The magistrate said it's okay for me to be perverted and as a man to have sex with another man, so it must be good. This goes to eternal matters. If the magistrates do mirror the law and justice of God and say murdering your son or daughter is a crime, that homosexual acts are a crime, it helps men more readily see their guilt before God. Do you understand these things? It's extremely important that you do because of the form of Christianity you live in the midst of. When they, magistrates, make law which mirrors the law and justice of God, it helps men see their guilt before God more readily and their need for Jesus Christ. So this speaking to the magistrates is the history of Christianity. And it all starts here with Paul. It all starts here with Paul. And Christian men have followed it ever since until we get to modern-day Western Christianity, which thinks we should have nothing to do with civil government matters. A huge mistake. So Paul had this mission to the magistrates, this mission to the nations. And when the Lord has an important mission for you, you are confident, like Paul is here, even in the midst of such a dread situation as Paul found himself here, And you understand, this wasn't Paul's first time being shipwrecked, right? Remember what he said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25? 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25? He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times. A night and a day I have been in the deep. He spent a whole night and a day out in the ocean. Or some sea floating around. But Paul's confident. He understands he's in the Lord's hands. The Lord is Paul's sovereign and the sovereign of the affairs of men. As it says in Daniel 4.17, the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men. He is the great sovereign. I wrote a Facebook post this past week. I was pondering such things, and I noted my belief regarding these things, and I stated, and this is what I posted, I said, my belief, colon, I cannot hide well enough if God wants me dead, nor can they shoot straight enough if God wants me alive. 
And I believe that fully. I cannot hide well enough if God wants me dead, nor can they shoot straight enough if God wants me alive. I believe that. If he has a mission for me, I will remain till it is time for me to go. You all need to understand that. You need to seek him and know what it is he has for you to do here in the earth. Understand, I'm talking about those special things he has for you to do. If you're a man, be a man. Be a husband. Be a father. Amen? If you're a woman, be a woman. Be a wife. Be a mother. These are all things that we do. But there's things he has for us on mission to accomplish in the earth. And we must seek him to know what those things are. I had a number of people write some good thoughts when I posted that post on Facebook. A friend of mine, Dan Gibson, is pretty old now, in his late 70s. He had fought in Vietnam, and he wrote this. He said, literally hundreds of bullets were fired directly at me in Vietnam, and I couldn't understand how I survived until years later when I became a Christian. Praise God, he says. Men notice that. Amen? He is the great sovereign. Mark Hamilton, friend out in Ohio, theologian, said, wasn't it Spurgeon who said, quote, I'll die when God says my work is done, unquote. Amen? This is how we think as Christian men and women. We're not walking around with masks and acting like little toadies, standing six feet apart, not going to hug anybody, and acting like a dope. Right? We understand our, our lives are in his hands. Yeah, we don't go stand in front of a speeding train on a train track, do we? We're not, right. But we go on with our lives and we do what's needed to be done. We understand that a speeding train on a railroad track will kill us. We also have enough brains to study stuff out like a supposed awful virus that's killing everyone, when it really isn't, so that we know, okay, that's dumb to follow what that's what they're saying, that's stupid. Okay, you're dumb. Get a brain, right? I was just visualizing all my trips to Piggly Wiggly and Farm Inflate and stuff. It's like, I can say all those things to you because I don't say it to the people that pass me by, right? You're like the only one in there without a mask. And everybody, dope, idiot, <laughs> you know, moron. <laughs> you know, it's like, so... I have these thoughts, but just so you know, I do witness to people and tell people about Jesus <laughs> in the midst of it all. I always have my <laughs> tracks on me. I get in many conversations. But, yeah. Here's another guy, Don Simmons, who's a pastor way down south somewhere. I forget where. And um, he says, reminiscent of Stonewall Jackson's famous quote, and here's the quote, Captain... My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter when it may overtake me. And then he added after a pause, looking me full in the face, the guy reporting what Jackson said, this is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. And that is one of the biggest problems we have with manhood in America today is a lack of courage, a lack of bravery, cowards, 
our magistrates, our legislature here in Wisconsin refusing to check the tyrant governor. I'll tell you the only reason they haven't checked him is because of cowardice. Isn't it amazing that when you look at that list of those thrown into the lake of fire in the book of Revelation, and it's an awful list of awful people, that the very first one listed is cowards, the cowardly. That's what God thinks of cowardice. Let me tell you, the only way you can be a brave man is if you fear God. You must fear God. If you fear man, you will never be brave. And that's why the majority of people are walking around wearing those masks. They want to be liked. They don't want a confrontation. They want everyone to think well of them. That's cowardice. When you know something's a lie, and they do know it's a lie, but they wear the mask anyway, that's messed up. Stand for what's true and what's right. All these Christians saying you should wear the mask so that you know you show love and you keep a good witness. We do not show love and we do not keep a good witness by aiding and abetting a lie. As Christians, we don't obey, aid and abet lies. As Christians, we tell the truth. And that's how God uses us for his purposes. That's how we have a good witness. That's true love. When God has a mission for you, you can rest easy in the midst of crazy situations. Your times are in his hands. I don't know how many times I've found myself in hostile situations out in the marketplace when we're doing ministry for the Lord and God just fills me with boldness and look at me. I'm like a little Pillsbury Doughboy. And that may be part of the reason I never get my lights knocked out is because they're like, well, there's no glory in knocking him out. <laughs> you know? so it's like, there is some goodness in being small and insignificant. You know? so. But it's important to be bold. Amen? It's important to be bold. And when God fills you with the fire of his Holy Spirit, let it out. This world needs to hear his thoughts. Notice how God's hand is with Paul. Look at chapter 28. I just want to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 28. It says, Now when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he had escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But Paul shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead because all the other people who got bit by the snake did. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. (laughs) When you're on mission, even a snake, a poisonous deadly snake can bite you. If God doesn't want you to go, you're not leaving. You're staying on mission till he's done. There's a goodness in that. There's so much goodness in that. So Paul had this mission to the magistrates, this mission to the nations. 
And this mission to disseminate the law, word, and gospel to the Jews and Gentiles in that area. There was already a church long established in that region, in Rome. He would build them up in the faith and write to the believers in the various places he had traveled while there at Rome. It goes on in verses 27 and 28, and it says, Now when the fourteenth night had come, so this was long, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So 14 days, driven up and down, they dropped four anchors from the stern. Who knows where the stern of a ship is, young people? Kids? Some kid out there? Who knows what the stern is? Has he got a hand? Yes. The back of the boat. Very good. Okay, kids, what's the front of the boat called? Yes. The bow. Thank you. Yep. So they dropped four anchors off the back. And then I love this expression. And prayed for day to come. (laughs) They were all praying at that point. Even unbelievers pray at that point. They're all praying. Just get it, get me out of here. (laughs) I remember when I was a five, six year old kid and I'd be sick. I didn't know God. And, um, raised in an unbelieving home. But man, after you're sick for a couple days, I prayed like a madman. And I made deals with God, get me well and I'll go to Mass for four weeks in a row or something like this. Come up with all this crazy stuff. I won't say something mean to my sister, whatever, you know what I mean? Of course, as soon as I was well, I never, yeah. But yeah, they were praying for day to come. Verse 30 to 32, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. They all believe Paul now. <laughs> it's like This guy's saying, you don't get to go. Shh, cut the ropes. <laughs> you know, Nobody's getting off this boat. <laughs> you know? He's come up in his, you know, eminence amongst the uh, people on this ship at this point. He's got credibility now. He told them, don't leave Fair Havens. And they're all wishing, yeah, we should have listened to that guy. So Paul knew if there wasn't a full crew, the ship would be lost with human life. Keep them here. We're going to need those guys to help drive this ship in so we can all jump off and save ourselves. Verse 33, And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Look at his trust in the providence of God. Even still out there in the midst of this storm, he says, Not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. He knew what the Lord had told him. He knew they were safe in his hand. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And it's good to do that. This is where we get the idea that even when we're in a restaurant, we stop and we pray to God. It's fine for unbelievers to see you give thanks to God for 
his sustenance for you, his provision for you. Amen? You're not, it's not like what Jesus was addressing with the Pharisees, trying to be seen of men and all that. It's because of what Paul did here. Then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So, verse 37, and in all, there were, we were 276 persons on the ship. Now you might be thinking, they had a ship that carried 276 people back then? Plus all the luggage and um, cargo they had? Yeah. In fact, Josephus, remember him? He was a historian from that era. He writes about how he was in a shipwreck where there were 600 passengers and only eight of the, 80 of them, himself included, survived. So they had big ships back then. So it goes on here and it says, verse 38, So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. It's like a sandbar type of a thing. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. They're just going to drive the ship right into that sandbar, into that land. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Okay? And then it says in verse 42, And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. And the reason they would want to do that is because if a prisoner escaped, whatever their punishment was going to be, you as a Roman soldier had that punishment given to you. So they're like, let's just kill them all so none of them get away. Well, they're on an island, so they're not going to get away. But they didn't know that at the time. But, it says in verse 43, the centurion, Julius, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. And so it all came to pass, as the Lord had told Paul, none was lost, not one. And great things will happen on this little island of Malta, as we'll see in the next chapter. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah, Father. Lord, we give thanks and we give praise to you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your scriptures, which you have preserved down through the ages that we might know your ways and your thoughts. And Lord, I ask and pray that each one here, that their hearts would burn within them when they read your word, that they would desire to bring application to their life and to every area of life regarding your word here in the earth, O Lord. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the men of old who loved you, like Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, Lord, all what they endured being faithful to you, making you known to men, bringing mission to the magistrates, making your law, word, and gospel known to men. And Lord, may we do the same with our lives. 
May we make you known to men, wherever we may be, wherever you may have us, or whatever work we have, use us there. Wherever we may be now in our lives, use us there. Lord, we just ask and pray that we would bring glory to your name through our lives. Lord, I ask and pray that you build up each home in this congregation, that their hearts would be wed to you, and as they are, they'd be wed to one another, that each one would be a bright light and a dark nation, that they would be an example of what you intended marriage and family to be. Lord, use our shortcomings, our failings, use it all to build your kingdom within our lives better, stronger. Lord, we give thanks to you for your goodness to us. May we do right by you with the days you've allotted us. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise his name. You could be seated. And um, we're going to get ready for communion at this time.